So you might remember this, but the, the last, uh, what, three weeks now, all of the songs have been songs of request. We were trying to do kind of a hymn scene. When I was growing up, uh, I was kind of, my. so you, you probably don't know this, but my childhood pastor comes to church here. He's not here this morning, so I'm going to tell this story. But uh, when I was a kid, I always felt like if he didn't have a sermon prepared, we would do a hymn scene. <laughs> and basically, people would like, shout out what what song they wanted to sing and the and the and the pianist and and musicians would sing that song and so it's always kind of fun to get to do that and so the last few weeks we've been having people make requests online and email in their requests and so this was the last sunday of our virtual hymn scene and so thank you for all of you who don't or uh, uh requested songs and um Anyway, it was, it was good, and that last little mashup of Amazing Grace with Jesus Loves Me was pretty powerful. Let's pray. God, this morning, as we gather to hear your word, I pray that you would um, speak through me and speak to me, and that the words that you have to say to us, Lord, would fall on fertile soil like seed planted deep that we would produce fruit of kindness, love, joy, and peace in the world around us that so desperately needs it. And that we would do it all in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're uh, starting basically a two-week sermon series on telling people about our lives and about what we believe and about what's going on in our lives does anybody know of the political commentator David Brooks? He writes for the New York Times. He's a traditionally conservative uh, political commentator. And last year he was invited to speak at Church of the Resurrection, which is the largest uh, church in the United Methodist world. It's in Kansas City, Missouri. It's, it's just a massive, massive congregation. And every year... Adam Hamilton, who's the pastor at Church of the Resurrection, puts on a leadership conference, and people from all, literally all over the world will come in for this conference, and David Brooks was one of the speakers at it last year. And he told a story um, about growing up as a Jew, in a Jewish-slash-atheistic family in New York, and, and grew into adulthood with this like tiny little sprinkling of Judaism mixed with a whole chunk of atheism, and surrounded himself with smart people who were deep thinkers, and he started writing, and he became a pretty well-known commentator with the New York Times. And he was at a conference one time, and there were a panel of people that he knew well sitting on a stage, and they were all asking, answering questions, and the, the panel leader said, how... It, raise your hand if your faith is vitally important to you. And all of his friends raised their hands. And he didn't know that any of them had any kind of faith. Nobody in his life had had the courage to talk to him about their faith. You know the saying, don't ever talk about politics and don't ever talk about religion. Well, they would talk politics all the time because that's, part of who he was, but they would never talk religion. And he said this at that conference last year. He said, churches have what the country wants if we, the church, 
could only talk to them in language that isn't off-putting. The public square has been abandoned by people of faith for reasons I do not fully understand. Eventually, he started asking enough questions because he was curious that now he says he has a tiny bit of Judaism, a large chunk of Christianity, and it's nestled nicely in a whole bowl full of doubt. Which reminded me of you all, by the way. Which is good. Remember, we talk about how certainty is the lack of faith. Like, certainty is less faith than someone who actually doubts and still believes. Because if I am certain that I could stand on this chair and it's not going to fall, it takes no faith for me to stand on it. But if I'm not certain, but I believe mostly that it's going to hold me, it takes faith for me to stand up on the chair, right? But David Brooks talked a lot about the fact that he believes... People in the world who would say they have no faith whatsoever are genuinely and deeply curious about faith and about things of bigger picture than they are. And so this idea to not talk about religion and not talk about politics in polite company, he would say is doing a disservice to everybody around us because people want what we have. The world is full of people who are hurting The world is full of people who are struggling. The world is full of people who are in pain. And they don't know what to do about it. And sometimes we don't either, but we at least have what we think of as some of the answers, and so we have to talk about it. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 16 of Matthew chapter 5. This is smack in the middle of the number one song on Jesus' album of greatest hits called the Beatitudes. You've heard this before, but I'll read it to you again. Jesus said to the people who were sitting around listening to this sermon of his, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top, on top of a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand And it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see the good things you do and praise God who is in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jesus did not give us faith to be personal and private. I know a lot of us have been told throughout our lives, it's okay, your faith can be personal, it's a private thing. I don't want to share my faith because it's private to me. I don't know where that idea came from. Historically, when you look back on it, 
that started most likely sometime in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s of the 1900s. This movement kind of started and, and our faith became like acne. We wanted to hide it from people. We didn't want to share what was happening in our lives. In United Methodism, up until the 60s and early 70s, pastors only did part of the talking. We're the weirdos who stand up and talk about our faith all the time, but it used to be you all. There would be Sundays where people would get up and share their testimonies of what God had done in their lives so that it would bring hope to everybody else. Methodism wasn't a a, a denomination of highly educated people standing up and spouting off about what they thought they knew. It was about normal, everyday people talking about what they had experienced. And it spread like wildfire throughout the United States in the 1700s, 1800s, and even till the mid-1900s. So don't be surprised if in the coming weeks and months I don't call you and say, Hey, Warren, can you Zoom with me? And I just want you to tell me a story about your faith, something that has happened to you that you believe God was doing in your life. And I'm going to record that conversation and we're all going to watch it some Sunday morning. Don't be surprised if I call you and ask you to do something like that for us. Because we have to tell somebody. You have experienced joy. You have experienced challenge. You have experienced grief. You have experienced loss. You have experienced amazing gifts. And it's so important that we tell people about it. When I lived in Denver, I've told you this story before, but Denver, Colorado is the second least religious city in the United States. Number one is Portland, Oregon. And when we lived in Denver, Colorado, um, I can remember... The third week that we lived there, we went to a soccer practice. Elise was four years old, three or four years old, and we went to soccer practice, and we're standing around, and and Denver is like college. Nobody is from there. And so you'd stand next to parents, and they'd be like, hey, where are you from? And I would say, oh, I'm from New Mexico. No, not Albuquerque. There are other places besides Albuquerque and Santa Fe and New Mexico, by the way. And, and I would say, and they, they'd say, oh, well, where? Well, I'm from Carlsbad. Oh, that's, yeah, that's the caves. People know about the caves. What'd you move here for? Well, I'm, I'm here for grad school. Because if I said seminary, that's kind of confusing to people. Oh, really? What are you studying? And I would say theology, because if I said I'm getting a master's of divinity, I don't even know what that means. And so I wasn't about to say that. Studying theology, oh, well, what do you, what do, you do with that? Oh, I'll, I'm a pastor. A Christian pastor? I've, I've never met a Christian pastor. What's that about? And like the doors would fly wide open. Because people are curious. When we lived in Abilene, some of mine and Michelle's best friends, Jeremy and Nikki, regularly would say, Hey, we want you to come over for dinner. We've got some friends who want to meet you. I was like that friend, the weird one that they would talk about, and people would be like, i got to meet this guy. (laughs) They wanted to know a pastor. 
They wanted to talk to someone who would talk about their faith and could answer questions. But here's the thing. They didn't need me to be the expert. They needed me to be me. They needed me to say, I don't know. What do you think? And just stir the conversations. And people that you know, I promise you, people that you know are more curious than that even about you and your faith. Hopefully they know you have faith and you're not like David Brooks' friends. You've probably heard the saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel and use words if you must. I hate that saying. Here's why. Number one, he didn't say it. It's, a misattribu- it's misattributed to him. Number two, it doesn't work because our lives aren't that interesting. And number three, it goes against what Jesus taught. There's this story that's found in several places in the Bible, but the one I want to read to you comes from Luke. Jesus is walking through a town, and he finds out about a man who's incredibly, most likely mentally ill. They, they say he was demon-possessed, but the reality is he probably had disassociative identity disorder, which we know of as multiple personalities. And everyone was really afraid of him, and so they took him out into the countryside and chained him up in a cave. And Jesus walks up and to the man, and the man starts screaming at him because he's terrified. Whatever is in him, whatever the personality thing is that's in him, is terrified of Jesus And Jesus says to him, what is your name? And he says, we are legion because we're many. And Jesus heals the man and sends the sickness into the pigs that are nearby. And the pigs run off of a cliff and fall into deep water, which represents the abyss. And then this happens. The man from whom the demons had gone begged to come along with Jesus as one of his disciples. Return home and tell the story of what God has done for you. You can't follow me this time. Go home and tell people what God has done for you. So he went throughout the city proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. We always think, or at least I do, that when somebody says, I want to follow you, Jesus, that Jesus was like, come on, the more the merrier. But what Jesus wanted was to let people know that there's a reason to have hope, that there's a possibility of healing, that forgiveness can happen, that God is bigger and kinder and more loving than any of us could ever imagine. Jesus wanted people to know that, and Jesus knew that there were people, that this man who had been demon-possessed or had multiple personalities or whatever, that this man had friends and family members who would listen to him but would never darken the doors of where Jesus was at. You have friends and family who will never, ever darken the doors of this church building. And if you invited them to your house and said, you should come over and meet my pastor, they're going to be like, heck no. And I get it. It doesn't hurt my feelings, by the way. Jesus wants people to know Here's the amazing thing. 
when you have an experience of God, whatever that looks like for you, and you share that experience with other people, it becomes bigger. It becomes more powerful even in your own life. That's why if Micah had said, hey, Ross, will you come to my house and baptize me? I would have been like, only if I can invite everybody from the church over. Because we all need to experience these things together because they come bigger, become bigger when it's more than just one person. It's all of us experiencing it. If I were baptizing a baby and I was holding it and I was like, oh, you should see this baby. It is so cute. This is the most, this is the cutest baby I've ever seen in my life. You'd be like, let me see. And if I was like, no, I'm just going to look at this baby. But if I did like this and showed you the baby, we would all experience it together. And it changes us. When I share my faith with people, it's not like I'm at the barber shop and I, I never in my life have said to my barber, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? Never. And never will I. But I have a conversation. And because my faith is at the center of who I am, and I know it's at the center of who you are too, we talk about it. And as we talk about it, people start to take pieces. And they start to find answers for themselves. And we're doing the work. And so I just want to encourage you this morning to keep doing that. Go somewhere this week, online, or wherever, and tell somebody about this kid named Dale Yo, who has a childlike spirit and was like, I got to get that water poured over my head too. Go somewhere and talk about this person that's amazing named Micah, who you saw get water poured over her head and the smile on her face lit the place up. Because her story, Dale's story, are now our story. Am I making sense? We do it for other people, but we do it for ourselves also. I just want you to be, I want it to be very clear, I'm not talking about getting into some sort of theological arguments and trying to coerce people into believing something or saying something or doing something that they're not about. But what I think is really important for us is to follow in the way of Jesus who walked around showing love and grace to everyone around him, pointing us back to God. And when he healed people, he was like, oh, tell somebody about it. And it's in the telling that our faith and other people's faith grows. Last thing, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, how can they believe if nobody tells them? How can they see if nobody shows them? How can they hear if nobody says it out loud? So say it. When Elise and Emery were little, and all of you have had this experience if you've ever been around little kids, especially if you're raising them, they cry. And sometimes they cry a lot. And it's annoying as could be sometimes. And I can remember 
looking at both Elise and Emery, and they would be like frustrated and crying, and they wouldn't be they wouldn't tell me what was wrong, and they actually had words to use at this point in their life, like when they're little bitty babies, you know, like they can't talk, whatever. But when they're one or two years old and can talk and would rather cry and throw a little temper tantrum, what would we say? Use your words. Use your words. I know you have it in you. You know you have it in you. And it's good for our souls if we use our words in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen.